The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. So, in 1981, the band Journey released a song. It has stayed relevant over 40 years, four decades. You all have it going in your head right now, right? It's your go-to song on a sunny day. You got the windows rolled down. Your head's kind of nodding a little bit. Play played in stadiums. My wife, Sarah, she sings it very loudly in our kitchen when prepping small group meals. Um, and so, but once you hear it, it's in there, right? It's stuck in your head. You all know the song, right? Don't stop believing. You can hear it. You can hear it, right? You can hear, you've got the tune. I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, I like the song. It's good. Um, but have you ever actually listened or read the lyrics? I'm not a lyrics guy. I typically make up my own. I don't really know what most songs say. Um, so in, in preparation for this, I just spent some time reading Journey. Uh, don't stop believing. And it's kind of interesting that the lyrics actually don't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, it's really like they just got a good tune in one key phrase, and they put a lot of random words around it that don't add up to anything. Um, and have you ever thought, like, why does this anthem, Don't Stop Believing, why does it still resonate so well four decades later? Have you ever thought to ask, what is Journey really saying? Don't stop believing in what? You see, I think one of the core components of being a human being is the ability to believe. Everyone has beliefs. Even if you say you believe in nothing, that means you believe in something. Every human wants to believe in something. And I think Journey can sing this ambiguous anthem, Don't Stop Believing, and it hits at something much bigger and something other for most of us. <coughs> Excuse me. I heard a pastor recently make the observation that the struggles for the American church lie not with persecution, but with unbelief. Unbelief and doubt are the fiery arrows that the enemy hurls at us. And it's often very easy for us to declare that we believe in God, yet when the trials of life and the cares of this world come upon us, we begin to wither and fade. Our unbelief and the promises of God begin to show that we trust ourselves more than we trust in God. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, he calls the reader there to observe those that have gone before them and who have kept the faith and held fast all the way through. And he says, imitate those people. And so I think today as we go through Acts 27, that's really what I want us to do, is I just want us to observe Paul and his unwavering belief, because I think he provides an example worth imitating. <clears throat> so um, we're just going to kind of do three things. First, we're just going to kind of move very fast through all 44 verses of this chapter. I just want to walk through to have a context of what's happening to Paul. Second, I just want to make a couple of observations about the passage, and then we'll have a few points of uh, application. So, let's walk through this passage very quickly. Uh, we're going to put a map up on the screen. I think it's there. All right, I know it's hard to see, but I do think it's helpful if we can. I tried to zoom in, or really Trevor and Jonathan zoomed in for me as best we could. So, let's, uh, let's start next 27. Just to kind of get us a running start, if you remember last week when Trevor preached, we've got Paul... Um, falsely imprisoned, he's declared his innocence and appealed to Caesar as a Roman citizen. And even Agrippa last week tells Festus, he says, man, if Paul hadn't done that, we probably would have let him go. But since he appealed to Caesar, we're sending him to Rome. So we pick up in Acts 27 with Paul heading to Rome. So let's read verse 1 through 3. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. 
and embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So Paul's being sent to Rome. He's assigned to a centurion, Julius, uh, to ensure his safe passage. Now, one interesting thing to kind of note here in the first three verses is just the pronoun usage. Luke is writing here, and he's using the pronoun we. So it's, 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 uh, it appears that Luke is traveling with Paul along with Aristarchus. Now, that's not uncommon for folks to travel with prisoners. Again, there's no welfare system. Um, if a prisoner is going to be cared for, it's got to be done by somebody else. So Luke, it seems, is traveling with Paul. They set sail, and they begin making their way up the coastline. So you can kind of see they start a little bit above Jerusalem. Uh, they put in, and they head just a little bit north, if you see kind of the green closest to me, um, up to Sidon. <clears throat> so at Sidon, they get delayed. Julius allows Paul to go visit with his friends and be cared for. Uh, the people in Sidon, remember in Acts 15, when there's this dispute, and Paul is heading to Jerusalem for the council at Jerusalem. It says he stops here in this region and shares all that God is doing among the Gentiles, and it says he brought great joy to the entire region. So it's kind of neat now, full circle. Paul's on his way to Rome, but he stops there being cared for by those saints. Verse 5, um, or verse 4, And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came up to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So you can see they, they take their journey, they go around Cyprus, and they're kind of going through those waters, and then they land on Myra. So um, here at Myra, they change to a grain ship, it says, and they're going to set sail for Italy. And so you can see that uh, they begin to continue to progress towards, make progress towards Crete, um, but he notes here that the wind starts picking up and makes the trip very difficult. So that's pretty significant because it slows their progress. And I, I read one commentator that said this trip could be made normally in two to three days, but with a bad wind, it could take upwards of four to five weeks. So let's keep reading. Verse 9, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So because of this delay and it taking them so long to get there, they're now entering the hurricane season. So no one really traveled after the, the, the fast that it talks about. Um, and basically they say, hey, this is not a good place to be, so we're going to take the chance and we're going to try to make it to another harbor. Paul gives them a warning, but the owner of the boat says, let's keep going. Verse 13, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down for the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. <clears throat> Running under the lee of a small island called Clauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting... 
it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the surface, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. You have just seen my recurring nightmare. Um, in my household, we often play a game called Would You Rather around the dinner table. And a recurring one that comes up is always, Would you rather be lost at sea or in space? You can think about that, but there is no other answer but to be lost in space, okay? <laughs> I'm willing to argue with anyone. Um, this is another reason why you don't do cruise ships, right? You don't get on boats and you don't go out in the middle of the ocean because things happen. <laughs> and a joke about that, but in some sense, I think it's, it's easy for us in a passage like this to kind of lose sense of the gravitas of what's happening here. A northeaster storm comes in. These storms are like tropical storms. They typically carry wind like 90 to 110 miles an hour. Uh, a few have hit the U.S. before, which dropped like 50 inches of snow in two days. So it's a violent winter storm. And here's Paul and all these men in this little wooden boat floating out there in terrible weather. And it says in verse 20 that all of them had abandoned hope. Verse 21 since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, let's pay attention here, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So here we have a glimpse of Paul's unwavering belief in the promise and word of God. He tells the sailor about this meeting with an angel of the God whom he belongs to and he worships. And he exhorts them to hold fast. He says, I believe in God and it's going to happen exactly as he has planned, as exactly as he has said. So again, think about this. They have now gone 14 days. No food, no sun, no moon. They're being tossed around. And Paul is standing up here saying, have courage, men. We're going to be fine. God has said so. So they obviously they begin to check the fathoms, and as they get closer to land, looking for the depths. Verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So the sailors of the ship are trying to escape. They're trying to say, hey, we're going to go put out the anchors. But instead, they're getting the lifeboat and they're trying to abandon ship. The centurion now listens to Paul and Paul says, everyone's got to stay. So the soldiers cut the ropes and everyone stays on the boat. Verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. 
So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So they eat a meal. And after, just, after lightening the boat, they decide to drive it into this bay, but instead they run into a reef, and the ship begins to be battered and torn apart. Common practice you see here is that the Roman soldiers would kill the prisoners. It's best not to show up uh, to Rome knowing that your prisoners escaped. And so the centurion steps in, he stops their plan, and he commands them all to make their way to shore. So some jump off the ship, some float to shore. But in all, it happens exactly how God has planned and everyone makes it to the shore. So that's a long passage. A um, lot going on here. Interesting story. And I just want to today make really two observations from this passage. So two observations. First observation is the faithfulness of God. The second observation is the unwavering belief of the Apostle Paul. So let's start with just the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. He's faithful to accomplish all of his plans we see in Acts 27 that, that God is faithful to fulfill everything he's promised. There's really no rational reason anyone on that ship should have survived. And in fact, many of them, as we saw in verse 20, had already given up hope. But God promises to preserve them so that Paul might go before Caesar. And his plan is executed just as he said, even to the degree of the ship running aground. And we can look back all the way to the creation story and all throughout history, and we can see acts of God's faithfulness. We can look back in the book of Acts, all these things that we have read, these stories, and we can see God's faithfulness on display. Revelation 19, it talks about the conquering king who comes in on the white horse, and it says his name is faithful and true. It is who he is. It is his very nature that he is faithful. And here in this passage, God is preserving Paul, not for Paul's sake, but so that Paul can continue Jesus' mission and he can stand before Caesar and he can declare who the true king is. And I'm sure it's hard in the moment to understand why hard things happen or why these difficult things are happening to Paul and why God preserved him. But we know when Paul gets to Rome and he's imprisoned for several years, he's going to write the book of Ephesians. He's going to write Colossians, Philippians, Philemon. He's going to stand before Nero, ultimately be beheaded. God is carrying out his plan, and he will be faithful to see it through to the end. So God is faithful. Let's observe that. Let's also observe the unwavering belief of Paul. Paul here is being tossed around in a massive storm. No sun, no moon, no food, 14 days. This angel comes to him and says, hey, I'm going to preserve everybody on this ship. You have to get before Caesar. And I sit here and think, like, how foolish must Paul have looked to say this in front of those sailors and passengers on the ship. I feel like if I was one of those, I would probably have looked at him and said, you're out of your mind. We are going to die. We've all seen Titanic. We know how it happens. But Paul doesn't have a doubt about God's ability. He doesn't doubt God's ability to follow through on his promises. And we can see that Paul is very aware of who is in control. He tells the men that the angel is from the God that, whom he belongs to and whom he worships and serves 
Paul's very aware that he belongs to the sovereign king of the universe. This is the man that wrote Romans 8, right? You have to think in the back of his mind, he's like, there's no height, there's no depth, there's nothing in creation, there's no amount of wind, there's no wave that can separate me from the love of God. Paul belongs to God and Paul believes in God. He doesn't waver in his trust. It says that he has faith or belief, those words are used depending on your translation, in what God said, that it would come to pass. Paul's not debating God here. He's not questioning whether or not God understands the science behind how wind works or waves or if he's sitting there thinking like, Lord, seriously, why me? Another shipwreck? Another imprisonment? Like, why me? Have I not done enough for you? Not at all. Paul's not one to just pay lip service to his belief, but he puts it on display with his very actions. And so my question for us is, do we have the same unwavering belief? Can that be said of us? Can it be said of you? How do you respond when things go wrong? What do you do when things get hard? Do you get anxious? Do you get angry? you get short-tempered? Do you doubt? Do you retreat? As Christians, we need to have this unwavering belief in the God that we belong to. We belong to him and we worship him. And we know from God's word that this faith, this belief, it's a free gift of God. You can't earn it. You can't gain it through your own means. But I do think there's things that we can do and actions we can take to strengthen and develop our faith. I was talking with... uh, Jim Slice Jr. this past week, and I'm going to give him credit because Trevor didn't a few weeks ago. Um, but, um, uh, sorry, man. Um, but but we, were, we were at the beach this past week, and I was talking to Jim, and I was just like, man, I'm really kind of wrestling. Like, how does this work? You know, like, faith is this free gift. Like, could we do anything to, like, help it? Or is it just a gift? I mean, how does that, that really work? And, and Jim, very quickly, in his, um, his wisdom... Um, just said, you know, provided me the perfect illustration. He said, it's like Michael Jordan. I was like, oh, okay. Um, And he said, you know, he said Michael Jordan was given a very natural gift, right? Something that none of us in this room have when it comes to basketball. But he still had to practice, and he still had to hone the skill. And in the same way, we've been given a free gift that we didn't deserve with our faith. Uh, But there are still things that we can do to strengthen, to bolster to increase, not to increase, but to develop our faith. And even those means that we strengthen it are given to us by God's grace. So I want us today just to think about three characteristics of unwavering belief. Characteristic number one, unwavering belief is rooted in knowing the promises of God. Paul states here in Acts 27 that he believes that everything will happen exactly as the angel has communicated. Now, we might not have an angel standing before us these days, but God has given us every bit of communication we need in this book. Hebrews 1 tells us that a long time ago he spoke in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us in his son. God has given us his word. The question for us is, do you know it and do you trust it? Unwavering belief is rooted in knowing God and knowing his promises. Psalm 1 tells us, Um, The man who delights in the law of the Lord is like a tree planted by streams of water. By memorizing and studying God's word, we renew our minds to think rightly about who God is. 
And we can see time after time after time God's faithfulness throughout history. And we can be emboldened when fiery trials come our way. When the arrows of the evil one are shot at our hearts and souls and minds, we can stand firm. Paul says in Ephesians that the word of God is our only weapon to fight. The sword of the Spirit is the only weapon in the whole armor of God. He says when hard things come upon us, I think it's God's word and his promises that will sustain us to the end. That will give us this unwavering belief. And, you know, as I was preparing for this, I began to think about the last couple of years and the hardships that have come our way here at Richwood. And I honestly think that most visitors and most folks that come here, one of the things that the elders hear a lot is just the amount of joy, the warmth, the kindness that exists in our body when people visit us. Um, and it's true. You guys just do an incredible job. I um, mean, I look around the room, it's just like, the joy on people's faces and the joy uh, that comes from the Lord, I mean, I think it just exudes here at Ridgewood. But I think a lot of people that come here that haven't quite gotten to know us maybe completely yet don't know the sorrows that have shaped those joys. You think about the last couple of years, and I can think in this room there's folks whose mom and dad are no longer with us. I can think of folks who have been hospitalized, some that were close to death, I can think of health scares. I can think of diagnosis for which there is no cure. I think about the miscarriages. Another hardship that I think about for our congregation is the struggle with infertility. Um, and I hope you give me the benefit of the doubt just in case I don't say something exactly right. Um, but, but, man, our, my heart grieves. I know the elders' heart grieves over just the struggle that many in our congregation have had. Um, over this issue of infertility. The elders have more times than I can remember sat in that room over there and prayed for all of you that we know they're struggling with it. And I just think about the arduous and long journey that seems to characterize those infertility treatments. The cycle seems the same. It seems anticipation, let down, anticipation, let down over and over and over again. And I can't imagine what that does to your heart, to your mind, and to your body. And for many of you, after all those long treatments, the answer has still been no. And what do you do with that? I mean, how do you survive something like that? Do you just retreat? Do you shake your fist at God in anger? It's in these type of moments where our belief is tested. And it's precisely in these moments that we must hold fast to the promises of God. I personally have been so encouraged by many of you when in such pain and sorrow have held fast to the word of God. I've seen you trust that God is still good. I've heard it from your mouths. I've heard people at my dinner table saying that God is working all things for their good. All things, even though it hurts and doesn't make sense. That's what it looks like to hold on to the promises of God. We all will have various hardships and in these moments, it will help you. It will help us all to recall the promises of God. I think about when fear comes upon you, you know, and you're just overwhelmed. You've got to think in your mind, he's not giving me a spirit of fear, but of power and love and discipline. When anxiousness overwhelms you do, you, do you go to Psalm 23 and say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Psalm 121 Right? Where does my help come from? The Lord doesn't sleep or slumber. I look to the mountains. I know where my help comes from. It comes from the Lord Almighty. When the money is short, the bills just seem to pile up. Do you remember that your father closed the lilies of the fields and the birds of the air? How much more will he care for you? And when the storm seems upon us, and we all, or you feel all alone, 
Can you remember in that moment that he will never leave you nor forsake you? Unwavering belief is rooted in knowing God's promises. Characteristic number two. Unwavering belief is strengthened inside community. Notice two things in Acts 27. First, Paul is traveling with companions like Luke on this journey. And two, we see when they stop in Sidon, Paul's allowed to go spend time with the saints. And he's cared for, it says, by those saints. There's just this sense in the New Testament and in Paul's writings that this life is not a solo journey, but that we were designed to be in fellowship with one another. People will often ask us, why do we do community groups? And this is the very reason. It is important for us to be together and to have opportunities to encourage and exhort one another. I think about Hebrews chapter 3. Remember that passage. He says, Take care, brethren, lest there be among you any evil, unbelieving heart, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have a responsibility to one another, to look out for one another, to lean into one another. One of the earliest signs of trouble that I have observed in people that have walked away from the faith is that they often choose isolation rather than congregation. And we see people begin to just retreat away. And I think the call here for us is to say this type of unwavering belief, it exists and flourishes in community. We need each other to make it to the end. It matters that we're in fellowship with one another. Unwavering belief is strengthened inside community. Characteristic number three. Unwavering belief doesn't stop. Don't stop believing. Journey didn't know what they were singing about, but we do. We know that God is acting in history to accomplish all that he has promised and that he will complete it exactly as he has said. Don't stop believing that. Think about the type of power that we possess if we can get our hearts around this. That no matter what comes our way, our Father is the sovereign King of the universe, and He will be faithful throughout all eternity. Don't stop believing, no matter what comes your way. We've talked about how this belief can sustain us in hardships, but it also can just propel us into positive things. This unwavering belief, it can fuel people to be hospitable with one another, even when it doesn't make sense. It can fuel us to be generous and to share with one another as each has need. It's a type of belief that can sustain us in our final years and days. When you realize the road in front of you is probably shorter than the road behind you, your tendency might be to shut down and get a little scared and nervous. But it's this type of unwavering belief that can can propel you to the best years of your life in serving God. This is the type of belief that fuels a radical commitment to evangelizing your neighbors. How could you not? This unwavering belief should also launch us into global missions to continue the work that we're seeing being done here in Acts by Paul. To let goods and kindred go so that we can make Jesus known among the nations where his name has never been heard. Don't stop believing. Let's be a people at Ridgewood Church known for our deep-rooted belief. In God and in his promises. Last thing, and we'll close with this. For all you in this room that don't believe, the call today is not to wait. Don't wait. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The call for you is to repent of your sin, which means to turn away from it, and to believe that Jesus is Lord. Don't wait. 
After the service, Trevor's typically in the lobby. I'm here. The friend that brought you is here. God offers you life and life eternal. All you have to do is believe. Let's pray. Father, may this be true of Ridgewood Church, that we are a people that know your word, that we trust your word, and that we have an unwavering belief in you. Father, you have put your faithfulness on display throughout the years and throughout history. And Lord, may we see that and may we believe that you will continue to be faithful and true for us. Lord, help us to be a people that hold fast to your word. And Father, help us, help us to let your word dwell richly in us. And Lord, help us to be a people that are on fire for sharing the good news. And Lord, may we tell our friends and our neighbors and our family members that you have come and you have died and you were raised again on the third day and that you offer life. And Lord, I pray this morning for those in here that don't believe, Lord, that you would change their hearts, that you would open their eyes to see your goodness and may you draw them to yourself. And so Lord, again, just thankful for your word. Be with us as we sing. Help us to admonish and encourage one another with song and may your face shine upon us. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.